1: The FT.
2: Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. This week we'll be looking at the results from the UK's two state-backed lenders, Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds should be back in profit for the first time since the financial crisis.
3: RBS, on the other hand, is still teetering on the brink of profitability. It's going to be just still in losses, we think.
2: And we're also going to be looking at banks looking to sell more products to fewer clients on the back of M&A mandates.
0: During every downturn and just as the cycle is picking up again, they tend to start saying they're going to cross-sell all their products to fewer clients and become tougher. And
2: we're going to end the show this week with the recent spike in emergency lending from the ECB by Ireland's two embattled lenders, Anglo-Irish and Irish Nationwide Building Society.
1: Anglo-Irish and Irish Nationwide are about to have their deposits split from the rest of the bank, so we're having a good bank, bad bank situation. And because this is happening in the next week, they couldn't do week-long lending using this collateral. So they had to go for the overnight stuff, which will cost them more.
2: Joining me in the studio today to discuss these topics are Charlene Goff, Jennifer Hughes and Lena Seigel. But we're going to start the show this week with Stateside,
1: brought to us by Suzanne
2: Kapner, the U.S. retail banking correspondent. Over to you, Suzanne.
4: Thanks, Megan. We had three big stories in the U.S. last week. The budget battle now taking place between Democrats and Republicans. Second, uh, Bernard Madoff and some new details that have emerged from that giant Ponzi scheme. And thirdly, stock exchange mergers, which continue to dominate the headlines. President Barack Obama proposed $1.1 trillion in budget cuts, the most austere fiscal agenda since he took office two years ago. Two-thirds of the cuts are to come from lower spending, including a five-year freeze on programs unrelated to national security and defense that would save $400 billion through 2021. The rest of the savings are expected to come from tax increases, including proposals to reduce deductions on charitable donations and mortgage interest payments. President Obama also suggested a broader overhaul of the corporate tax rate, which at 35% is the highest in the developed world. The proposal set the Democrats up for a clash with the Republicans who want spending cut more aggressively. Second, Bernard Madoff was back in the news last week after giving his first interview since his arrest to the New York Times. Mr. Madoff told the Times that banks and hedge funds had to know about his fraud, but he declined to say who knew what. New data released last week also revealed that the army of lawyers and consultants helping to recover funds from the fraud stands to earn more than $1.3 billion in fees. Baker Hostetler, the law firm where Irving Picard, the court-appointed trustee, works, is set to pocket the biggest amount. The firm has been paid $128 million since December 2008 and is expected to earn a further $603 million for its work between 2011 and 2014. Finally, stock exchange mergers also continue to dominate the headlines. On the heels of the New York Stock Exchange's agreement to combine with Deutsche Börse, BATS Global Markets, a Kansas City-based company designed to make trading faster and more efficient, has agreed to combine with CHI-X Europe, which already accounts for 25% of trading on the FTSE 100, in a share swap that values BATS at $1.2 billion. An initial public offering is considered the next step. This will be the latest wave of mergers that has swept through the exchanges, including the London Stock Exchange's planned tie-up with the TMX, which operates the Toronto and Montreal Bourses. Back to you, Megan.
2: Thanks, Suzanne. To our first topic today, looking ahead to the results to be announced by RBS and Lloyd's Banking Group, we've got Charlene Goff, the expert, in the studio with us today. Charlene, what are we going to be looking for? Is it going to be all bankers' bonuses again, or are we going to see some really resurgent business activities?
3: Well, we know what to expect around bonuses that will obviously attract a lot of attention. But they've sort of preempted that by coming out to say that Stephen Hester will get a a bonus of two million. He's the chief executive of RBS. Well, Eric Daniels, who's the outgoing chief executive of Lloyd's, will take a bonus of one point four million. So those figures are out there. So they shouldn't bring too much excitement on the day.
2: We already know RBS's bonus pool for their investment bank is 950.
3: Exactly, slightly less than 950, which is considerably down on a year ago, which is really just a a reflection of weakness in in their global banking and
2: markets business. Where revenues are down more than 25%, we should point out.
3: Exactly. So I think come Thursday, when RBS announces its results, we have Lloyds on Friday, we can turn attention a bit more closely to the actual underlying businesses and the recovery that's coming through at both of those now. I mean, both banks should be significantly better than they were a year ago when at Lloyds, for example, we saw 24 billion pounds of impairment losses on their bad loans. So that figure should be right down. Lloyds should be back in profit for the first time since the financial crisis and its government bailout. RBS, on the other hand, is still teetering on the brink of profitability. It's going to be just still in losses, we think. So analysts are expecting pre-tax losses of about £700 million for RBS. But nevertheless, a significant improvement. That will come through most significantly on the retail side of the business. Uh, Like you said, the investment banking side is still pretty weak there at RBS.
2: Lots of talk around when they're going to start selling down the government stake. There was lots in the Sundays this week. There's been. We've written quite a bit about this. Cut through some of the murk and tell us what's really going on with this. When can we expect to see them starting to sell down these stakes? Are they over there looking for sovereign investors now? What's really the real picture here?
3: Really, we can't see anything happening until at least the end of this year. This is very dependent on the report from the Banking Commission, which isn't due till September. Really, nothing can happen until then. Then after that comes through, the government has got to sort of digest the report and and put forward its response. So that could take another few months, uh, you know, we would expect. So I think we're really looking at the beginning of next year before we see any concrete movement to sell down the stakes in these banks. But saying that, you know, the government is... Obviously, sort of looking around for potential investors, sovereign wealth funds are clearly interested, you know, they bought into Barclays at the at the height of the financial crisis, and they are likely to be among the potential buyers. But I think it's too
2: early to say that there's definite interest coming from there yet. And finally, on this topic, there was a bit of breaking news this morning about Lloyd's. Can you just tell us a little bit about what we saw the announcement of a 500 million impairment charge?
3: This charge from Lloyd's is very consumer related. The bank has basically admitted that it may have overcharged up to 300,000 of its mortgage customers. And that was by basically signaling to these customers that their rate would be capped at a certain level when in effect it wasn't. And this was due to really just some confusing wording in the original offer documents which date back to 2004 where... This very large number of customers would think that their rate could not rise above 2%, but actually they were not caught by the cap, so they've actually ended up paying more. So Lloyd's has said this morning it's taking a hit of 500 million. Around 300,000 people will get a refund of up to 250 pounds. Some could even get a little bit more than that, so a check
2: coming their way. Very interesting. On to you, Lena Seigel. Welcome to the Banking Weekly podcast, a first-time appearance. You want to talk to us today about how banks are targeting fewer clients for more products.
0: Banks have tried this cross-selling before and during every downturn and just as the cycle is picking up again, they tend to start saying they're going to cross-sell all their products to fewer clients and become tougher. So in the past, during the debt boom, companies could pick and choose their advisors and where they wanted the financing from. But now with balanced streets constrained and the cost of funding going up, they can't support their infrastructure unless they start to sell the same company as many products as they can, which means everything from M&A, underwriting, the hedging, the foreign exchange. And this is not going to go down well with a lot of companies. It's interesting because
2: last week, there was a ruling out of the US relating to Del Monte in the M&A context of Barclays Capital, getting a really firm wrap on the knuckles for being on both the buy side and the sell side in terms of financing for a transaction. And it involves staple financing. I mean, that seems to be a lot on the minds of bankers that I talk to that ruling and sort of are they going to be constricted, though, and how much they can cross out in certain certain types of areas, etc. I mean, do you think that ruling is going to have significant dampening effect on some activities?
0: I think it will in the short term. But I think- think that paradoxically, the more banks cross sell, the more conflicts there are. And uh, what's funny about that ruling is that in the debt boom, banks were doing everything from financing the bidder to co-investing to advising the sell side. And really, the rule seems to be that if the client complains, then it's an issue. And if they don't, then it isn't.
2: I mean, do you see this manifesting itself in more times where there has to be specific board approval for taking on a variety of different roles or something that may appear as a conflict and that we're going to see more type of... Yeah, I think the
0: risk committees of banks are paying very close attention to to all of this and making hard decisions. Uh, but I don't think you'll see that much of it because they do not have the capital to spread around that far. So they're going to be making their own tough decisions as well, the risk committees on who to bank and who not. Not to bank,
2: I mean, Charlene, you were discussing that of one of the smaller investment banking players, Lloyd's Investment Banking Group, that they had really wanted to implement a you know what's called a greater wallet share type of strategy. I mean, what have they said to you about that? This exact strategy, even
3: at a much smaller level for Lloyd's, I mean, they are trying to move away from just being the lender to big corporates. You know, they did a, a huge amount of very risky lending, um, really. Grew their balance sheet incredibly quickly uh, through the boom years, and now they're trying to highlight their core customers and just sell them other products, like exactly what Lena was saying. You know, ways to sort of hedge foreign exchange risk, um, interest rate swaps. You know, all these kind of things that generate more money, and you know, they really want to be the, um, the the sort of core provider of those to have an overall sort of relationship with as many corporate customers as possible. And finally, Lena, on this point, who do you think is best set
2: up?
0: The universal banks, the ones that combine the balance sheet with real investment banking talent, so it's not just an add-on. Bank of America. Bank no, of JP America, anymore, yeah. yeah, UBS, JP. The new entrant strategy as well, Barclays Capital, Socgen, all the banks that have added on and boosted their M&A practices during the crisis, taking advantage of the crisis.
2: Let's move on to our final topic for today, the spike in borrowings from the ECB last week by two of Ireland's lenders who've been in trouble for quite some time now, Irish Nationwide and Anglo-Irish. Jen, there were a lot of rumours around the market last week about this in terms of who had potentially tapped in. There were some rumours it could have been another Eurozone lender. It emerged that it was two of Ireland's most embattled banks. Can you just describe the significance of this, what it means for Ireland and what it means for the market, and are people panicked that this could be another indicator
1: of stress? It's certainly not panic. If anything, it's probably a good signal. What it is, it's about the fact that Anglo-Irish and Irish Nationwide are about to have their deposits split from the rest of the bank, so we're having a good bank, bad bank situation. And because this is happening the next week, they couldn't do week-long lending using this collateral. So they had to go for the overnight stuff, which will cost them more. But the ECB, quite rightly, wasn't going to take collateral for a week where it didn't know it would be next week. So effectively, it's a good sign because what we're showing is that these are being wound up. Most of the market certainly considers that Anglo-Irish and Irish Nationwide are basket cases. They're gone, and we know that. So this is really just confirmation that the process is actually moving forward.
2: Some commentators described it as a bit unorthodox, um, the way it has been done. Do you feel that the flow of information to the market was as efficient as it could have been or should have been? I mean... With all the sort of rumours circulating that it could have been a fat finger situation in terms of someone pressing the wrong button,
1: it could have been another lender. That's certainly something I think the ECB should look at because it wasn't a fat finger. So this was a specific situation about two banks. However, if they started putting out information on this sort of thing where it happens for a specific reason... Then next time there is a fat finger or something, then we're going to be right all over them asking for more information and demanding it on the back of that. So while for the market, I think it would have been good, it's difficult for the ECB to give that information without adding to the transparency the market would like to see, but which could cause panic in other situations. This has interested the market. Everyone wanted to know who it was, but it hadn't really panicked people, which is kind of interesting. I think it shows a new level of, you know, sort of stabilization of market thinking right now. And tell me, aren't you working on another story about haircuts? We're trying to look at what's going to happen to the Irish banks after the election. Now, all the political leaders are talking about hair cutting or burning, burning the bondholders. That's been one of the phrases of the whole campaign. But we don't know until after the election who's actually going to do what. Now, what we know is publicly they've said quite a lot on this topic and they want to burn the bondholders, these senior bondholders should lose money because they lent imprudently to institutions who then made really bad loans. But on the other side, privately, they all seem to be saying actually that they want to work with the ECB, the European Union and the IMF and agree it with them. So this doesn't look like it would be some sort of outright day one bonfire of the bondholders.
2: (laughs) Perfect. Well, on that note, we are going to end the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. All that's left to do this week is to thank my guests, Lena Seigel, Jennifer Hughes, Charlene Goff, and Suzanne Kapner, and to you, the audience, for listening. Thanking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash
4: podcasts.